Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello? Phil Edwards. Yes? I've called you because I am tasking you with a matter of great importance. Uh, okay, just going to take long. Yes, it will take at least two years and then some. You're going to co-host a podcast about movies, and it's going to be the best movie podcast in the whole damn world. Uh, it sounds good, but I, I'm going out now. Uh, maybe give us a call back. Give me your number. I'll call, call you back when I get in. But I've just got to go out down the shops. Don't call me. I'll call you. Okay, then. Yeah. See ya. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye. Don't kill me. <laughs> hello. Hello, Phil. It is Mike. That was actually just oh. me on the other end. I know. Oh I know I sounded God. a lot like a mysterious phone caller, maybe even Kiefer Sutherland, although you not did really. Sound, I did think like that. I was thought it was either in 24 or, you know, any other Kiefer Sutherland TV show. Yes, yes. <laughs> Where he plays the same character all the time. Mm. But it was yeah. just me. It was just me doing a bit because we're doing phone booth today. So hello, Phil. Hello, Mike. How's it going? It's going well, thank you very much. Are you good? I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, I hope all the listeners out there are good. I hope so too. I hope so too. And they are in for a treat today. I know we have a couple of fun movies to talk about. Phil, tell people in your inimitable Phil style what we're going to be doing in today's episode. Today we will be doing, after the endings for 1997's My Best Friend's Wedding and 2002's Phone Booth and also our top 10 favorite films of the year 2003, which... Had some good films, but had a load of sorts of mediocre films. Yeah, yes, it did. Indeed, it did. Uh, and that's uh, that's what's coming up in this episode. Well, that sounds like fun. I don't see any reason to delay. Why don't we jump right into things, Phil? How's that sound? Yes, yeah, sounds good to me, Mike. Let's do it. Do you want to give us a rundown then for my best friend's wedding? Spoilers ahead. Yes. Oh, yeah. This is a real spoilerific film. Lots of twists and turns. This is sort of our our like our like post Valentine's Day was gonna be in our Valentine's Day episode. Uh, this was a listener suggestion actually from Maria. We read a letter out from her a couple weeks ago, um, and we thought it was a good suggestion for Valentine's Day. And then we we promptly messed that all right up. So yeah, but you know, Anaconda <laughs> was the best Valentine's Day film ever to watch. So. I, listen, I personally think that episode was a Valentine's Day gift to the listeners. So it was, it was. Um, but anyway, so in the spirit of that, here is my best friend's wedding, nineteen ninety. Directed by P.J. Hogan, starring Julia Roberts, Cameron Diaz, Dermot Mulroney, and Rupert Everett. And the story, such as it is, goes like this. Julianne Potter, played by Julia Roberts, is a 27-year-old restaurant critic. She receives a call from her lifelong best friend, Michael, played by Dermot Mulroney, telling her that he's getting married to Kimmy, played by Cameron Diaz, a student from a wealthy family. Turns out, in college, Julianne and Michael had made an agreement that if neither one of them was married by the time they turned 28, they would marry each other. Can I just say, I always thought, you know, picking 28 was an odd... Why pick 28? It's a little young. Most people are like, if we're not married when yeah. we're 40. Yeah, or you pick or 30. You pick right. like a round number, don't yeah. you? You don't go yeah. 28. You go 30, 35, 40. Yeah. I'm with you. What's 28? weird. Yes, yeah. indeed. Very random, arbitrary number. Anyway, sorry, go on. That's okay. So anyway, this phone call makes her realize that she's in love with Michael, and she heads off to the wedding to sabotage it. But Kimmy turns around and asks her to be the maid of honor. Eventually, Julianne asks her gay friend George to pretend that they're engaged, hoping to make Michael jealous. And then a whole bunch of things escalate. Michael and Kimmy fight, but then they realize they love each other. So Julianne reveals that she's in love with Michael and kisses him. Kimmy sees this and runs off. And Julianne and Kimmy eventually have a big fight, but then reconcile, and the wedding goes off as planned. The movie ends with Julianne and George happily sharing a dance at the reception. Ah, <laughs> the moment I wake up, <laughs> can't sing anymore because of copyright. <laughs> Listen, I think the way you're singing it, Phil, there's not much danger of copyright infringement. Thank you. Hold on. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. Oh, yeah, a little harsh uh, Feel a bit. That's yeah. like a transatlantic bird. Yeah, a little bit. All right. So, Phil, take us into your day after. Okay. With the wedding over, Michael and Kimmy go on their honeymoon. 
Julianne and George go to their respective hotel rooms or apartments because I couldn't quite remember whether it was near where they lived. <laughs> I, I think couple... it was in Chicago and they lived in... Oh, couple... in yeah, they in went back New to York. the hotel rooms then. Uh, yeah. yeah. A couple of days later, they're back in New York City and George and Julianne meet up at a new restaurant. It's mainly for Julianne to review the food, but also so that they can have a good chat about the events of the past few days. When the food arrives, both Julianne and George are blown away by it. It's the most wonderful meal they've ever had. They call for the chef, Lou Romano, but they're informed he has already left due to a family emergency. Julianne makes plans to meet up with the chef at some point in the near future. And that's my day after. Very cool. Okay, so that was my day after then, Mike. What's going on with your day after? All right, well, Julianne and Michael's relationship is never the same. Between him being married and all the strain of everything that occurred at the wedding, it's too much for their relationship to handle. Julianne pines for Michael, but she realizes that it's mostly all her fault. One day, as she's leaving her apartment, she narrowly avoids getting hit by a bus. It was a close call, but she jumped back on the curb in the nick of time. The encounter forces her to realize that she's been kind of a terrible person for most of her 20s, way too self-absorbed and selfish, and not really appreciating what she has in her life. So she wishes Michael and Kimmy well and decides that it's time to start living her best life. Hmm. And that's my day after. Is this Mike's famous bus killer? Well, yes, but you see what I did there? Yeah. She almost got hit by the bus because yeah. she's kind of not a, a nice person in this movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. She, yeah. No, right. I didn't. I don't fully hate her, but like, she's definitely not the sympathetic character in this film. So I feel like she almost got hit by the bus, but I didn't dislike her enough to actually hit her with the bus. But it was yeah. sort of the thing that turns her life around. Yeah. For any new listeners wondering what the hell we're talking about the bus for, <laughs> uh, go back to some of the early episodes and, well... Yeah, it's crops up quite a bit. Go back to any number yeah, there's of quite episodes, a few episodes really. where there's this No, don't, don't explain, Mike. They've got to go find out for themselves. Okay. All right, there you go. You have a, you yeah. have a mission. Find out what the bus it. is. That's right. Uh, it's, it's in at least five episodes that I can think of. So Yeah, it's good It's good to have the bus man back, actually. All right. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, let's hear about your immediate aftermath then. Okay, over the next few weeks, Julianne keeps almost meeting up with Lou, uh, and George is also keen to meet this new chef. Eventually, George and Julianne meet up with Lou at his restaurant where they have another meal that is even better than the first. Turns out Lou is a strikingly handsome young man, and there is instant connection between Lou and Julianne. She, she realises she can feel love again. However, Julianne sees that there also seems to be some kind of connection between Lou and George, uh-huh. something she wasn't expecting. <laughs> what follows is George and Julianne spending a lot of time with Lou, both together and separately, and for some reason more Diane Warwick songs get sung at various <laughs> meals and events. <laughs> However, Julianne finds out that George and Lou are heading away to Paris for the weekend, and Julianne realises she has yet to tell Lou how she feels about him. She rushes to the airport and runs through the crowd and goes, I need to get to that plane, I need to get to that plane. And the, for some reason, you know, the, the security let her through because it's a movie. Right. <laughs> uh, and she gets through there, but it's too late, and the plane's gone. Oh, she, man. She feels like she's missed a chance. Bummer. But that's uh, that's my immediate after. Oh, well, I'll have to see what what, uh, what comes of this. I could go either I way, know, I think. That was a roller coaster of emotion. Now, yeah, it, it? it was. I got all caught up in it. <laughs> okay, then what's going on with uh, with your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, over the next couple of years, Julianne is transformed. She begins going on adventures whenever she can. Skydiving, climbing a waterfall in Jamaica, swimming with sharks in the oceans of Australia. She also takes up charity work, using her connections in the New York restaurant scene to set up a charity wherein restaurants take their leftover food at the end of the day, and instead of throwing it away, they donate it to local homeless shelters. Between the charity work, her restaurant reviews, and her adventures, she begins to enjoy her life. But while her job is steady, her adventures are expensive and she needs to supplement her income, so she begins writing books. Her first book is simply a guide to the restaurants of New York, and it becomes a big seller when it's featured on Oprah. After a few more restaurant guides, she decides to branch out, and her first novel is the story of a restaurant critic who solves a murder at one of New York's most posh restaurants. And that's where I'm leaving it for now. Hmm. I'd read that. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, I like that. Thank you, thank you. All right, well, I want to hear if uh, if True Love wins out or if True Love wins out. It just really depends on who True Love might win out with. Yeah, but... and he any way you look at it, someone's going to be a winner. That's right. <laughs> Give us your long term there, Phil. Okay, well, Julianne's despondent. She feels she's she had this chance for happiness again, but she, she just ruined it by not speaking up. Uh, she thinks George and Lou will end up together. Her mood isn't helped with Michael and Kimmy returning from their honeymoon, all loved up and raving about what a great time they had. She spends the weekend walking around the city feeling sorry for herself. A few days later, George calls her saying they must meet up as he has some big, big news to tell her. Heartbroken, Julianne meets with George at a small cafe the next day. As she approaches, she, she, she sees George chatting with Lou. She almost turns around and goes home, but she takes a deep breath, does a big Julia Roberts smile, and goes to see them. 
George hugs her and Lou smiles as she sits at the table. George excuses himself to use the bathroom and Julianne and Lou do the whole talk and go over each other thing until they both realise that they really do like each other. George returns and laughs as he sits down. I knew you'd get on with my cousin, he says to Julianne. <laughs> cousin, says Julianne, but I thought you liked him. I know, says George. I couldn't help myself when I realised what you were thinking. So I thought I'd wind you up quite a bit because of all the crap you did for Michael's wedding. <laughs> Julianne punches George on the arm as he explains to Lou what had been going on. And they all laugh. And the future looks a bit brighter for Julianne. Oh, I like that. That's funny. <laughs> a, little, a little karmic revenge, courtesy of yes, George. Yeah, it's the kind of thing I reckon uh, the character of George would do. Yes, yes. That does yeah. seem very in, in keeping with his character. Yeah. But that's, uh, that's, that's mine. And so how does yours all wrap up? All right. Well, Julianne's book, The Fish is to Die For, is a moderate hit. I like that. (laughs) Thank you. Try the fish. Try the fish. (laughs) It's a moderate hit out of the gate. It's not a bestseller, but it does well enough for her publisher to request a follow-up. Two more mysteries follow, Five Star Murder and Homicide and Hash Browns, with more (laughs) success coming with each one. You know how much I love creating fake titles for things. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty soon, she's a best-selling author, and she uses her money to fund both her adventures and her charity work. One day in September, while Julianne is sitting in the airport waiting for a flight to California for the launch of her new book tour, she looks up to see Michael and Kimmy in the next seating area. They're laughing about something, and Julianne soon realizes it's the baby that Kimmy is holding. As she watches them, she realizes that she's never seen Michael look so happy. It takes her a moment to also realize that she's genuinely happy for him, too. She stares at them in awe for a few minutes, and then Michael looks up as if he senses her watching him. He looks around and then spots her. Their eyes lock, and they look at each other for a moment. Then Julianne smiles at him, and Michael smiles back. She holds her hands up to her heart and nods. He nods back, never saying a word, and then turns his attention back to Kimmy and the baby. Julianne watches them for a moment, then gets up and heads to her gate. And that's the end. That's good. Thanks. I like that. Yeah. Thank you. I thought it was important for her to, you know... To not be a terrible person anymore, so. Yeah, I've just I've just thought, though, you could have a post-credit sequence, though, where either Julianne's playing or the one that Michael and Kimmy get on. It's actually the one from, you know, Final Destination. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, yes, that would have been uh, an interesting way to take things, but yeah, yeah. I decided no, not but to No, but no, that was that lovely. Way. I like that. Thanks. I like to get a little maudlin once in a while. No, very, very nice. All right, well, there you go. Those are our endings. Phil, do you have my best friend's trivia handy by any chance? <laughs> yes, and I have written down here, Best friends trivia. <laughs> of course. I had a feeling. It is kind of one. it is yeah. kind of the obvious one. Like my best trivia's wedding doesn't really work as well. <laughs> no. I don't even know how trivia would get married. Okay, yeah. Uh, so best friends wedding trivia. Uh, Drew Barrymore read for the Kimberly role, but she lost out to Cameron Diaz when Julia Roberts suggested her for the part. Uh, Laura Dern was also considered to play Kimmy. Mm-hmm. The scene where Kimmy throws the bouquet was filmed at Cuneo Museum and Gardens. The film crew removed a large very uh, expensive carpet there and stored it and it took museum staff several months afterwards to find it oh jeez I know yeah, crazy that <laughs> uh, Dermot Mulrooney was cast after Ed Burns turned down the role mm. and that's my best friend's wedding but I quite I think they, they cast it rather well so yeah 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 yeah. It's a, it's a good film I don't. I honestly don't think I've seen it since it came out I remember enjoying it at the time uh, I don't think I've ever seen it since then, but I'm sure it's a, you know, it's a good kind of date night movie, maybe, or, you know. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Well, let's move on then to Phone Booth. Phil, take us behind the story of Phone Booth. Yes, uh, it's two, Phone Booth 2002. It's one of the Joel Schumacher's uh, good films. Yeah. He has it a mix. Yeah. Uh, it was the second film he made with Colin Farrell after Tigerland, which is a brilliant film. I love Tigerland. Right. I've not seen it. Check that one down. But this one, it's, uh, we follow Stu Shepard, played by Colin Farrell, who's an arrogant New York City publicist. What is it with people in New York being arrogant? Crazy. <laughs> uh, he's been seeing a woman called Pam, played by Katie Holmes, behind his wife's back, Kelly, uh, played by Rhoda Mitchell. So you know he's not very, very nice. He goes to use the last phone booth in New York City. And for the younger listeners, a phone booth... <laughs> <laughs> it's like this big box that stands on the streets. Yeah. Uh, over here in England, it was one that had it was like a big red book, box you could go and open a door and go and it was really cool looking. Uh, Inspector Space Time fans and community would know what that is. But uh, yeah, and same in America. It's like, you know, Bill and Ted, they use one. But you go in there and it was an actual phone connected with the wire. But we don't have them anymore. Right. Okay, yeah. So he goes to use the last phone booth in the city to call from. So he's, uh, you know, people, it doesn't show up on his cell phone. He's interrupted by a pizza delivery man who says he has free pizza, but uh, Stu tells him to get lost and insults his weight. Uh, once Stu finishes the call, the phone rings straight away and a man tells him not to not to leave the booth and says that he will call Pam and Kelly. And the man tells Stu he, gives, he gave two other people a chance to reveal the truth to those that they've wronged. 
Uh, the man on the other end of the phone proves that he has a sniper rifle trained on the phone booth and tells Stu he has to confess his feelings to both women. Stu tells Pam he's married. S stuff happens. The man shoots a pimp who was causing the scene and the police, led by Captain Ramsey, played by Forrest Whitaker, turn up thinking Stu is a killer as there's a gun seen near the phone booth and they try to get him out of the booth. Uh, the man on the other end of the phone demands Stu tell Kelly, uh, his wife, what's going on and so he does. And then Stu is told he has to pick one of the women and the caller will kill the other one. Stu then goes on a big big confession about how his life is a lie and uses his mobile phone to make the police aware of what's going on. The police trace the caller's location and the caller says he will kill Kelly. Stu rushes out uh, screaming and shouting and the police shoot him with rubber bullets. The police find the corpse of the man's location. Turns out it's the pizza guy from the beginning of the film. And while Stu is getting put in the ambulance and he's uh, given morphine, a man walks by who stops and tells Stu to stay honest or else. And it ends, we hear the phone ring again and another person picking it up. And we assume the cycle begins anew. But we will find out in a minute. Indeed we will. From our, after the endings, yes. yes. But that's, uh, that's Phone Booth. Which I quite liked. I quite liked the film. I did too. You know, it's a streamlined thriller. It's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a, it takes place almost entirely in this one place, you know, this phone booth. Yeah. And, but it's, it's taut and it's tight. It's, you know, it's a short film. It's not very long. It's, you know, it's not drawn out too much. And, you know, Colin Farrell's terrific. He's always great. And Kiefer Sutherland, you know, is the perfect casting as the voice of the, yeah, yeah. the man with the briefcase, you know. So I, I enjoyed it. You know, it's not one for the ages. It's not going to change the world. But as far as just a good way to kill 90 minutes, you yeah, do you, a want, lot worse. you want a little tense thriller? Yeah, it's good to put on. Definitely. Okay, then, so what's going on then with your day after the events of Phone Booth? Okay, well, the man with the briefcase calls his next victim. After a similar situation as happened with Stu plays out, the victim admits to his crimes and is taken to jail. The man returns to his hotel room and packs up his sniper rifle. Then he opens his briefcase and pulls out a piece of paper. Looking at it, he once again reflects upon the names in front of him. They mean nothing to him. Even Stu's name is just another anonymous face to him. Mm. He crosses off the name of the man he just finished with and then waits. In a few minutes, there's a knock on the door. When he answers it, there's no one there, as usual. At his feet, however, is a duffel bag. He looks around, but there's no one in sight. There never is. He pulls it inside and locks the door. Then he opens it up and begins counting. When he's finished, there's exactly $1 million piled on the table, just like there were after the first three names on the list. And that's my day after. Oh, I like that. Thank you. Yeah, it's a good way to go. Some intrigue to yeah. be found, I think. Because it is all quite mysterious, isn't it, the yeah. whole setup? Yeah. Okay, I can't wait to see what happens there. All right. Well, I'm excited to hear what you've got, so give us your day after. Okay, Stu takes a couple of days to recover. In that time, both Pam and Kelly visit him and end their relationship with him. And uh, he's not that surprised, to be honest. <laughs> right. I think it's fair. I know, yeah. Captain Ramsey questions Stu about the caller. Stu has a vague recollection of the man with a briefcase from the time in the ambulance, but the morphine clouded his memory and he can't give a clear description. Captain Ramsey realises that Stu's case could tie in with a number of other cases that happened over the past year or so. All involved people who seemingly, out of the blue, killed people before being shot dead. They'd all been in places that they refused to leave. Taxi cabs, internet cafes, airplanes, things like that. Mm. If they were related, then it means the caller was not working alone, as some occurred at the same time in different parts of the country. He decides to look deeper. And that's my day after. Well, I have to say yours is intriguing as well. Mm, it's a whole lot of intrigue going on. Yes, then. this is our intrigue episode. With you or with the actual caller. So what's going on with him? Okay, well, the man with the briefcase reflects on the pile of money sitting before him. He doesn't know who is paying him $1 million per name on the list, but he doesn't really care. Freelance assassins aren't known for their selectivity when it comes to victims. What is unusual, however, are the circumstances of this job. Ten names on a list, $10 million. His instructions are explicit. Get them to confess their crimes publicly or they must be killed. Try not to kill anyone else, but if it's necessary, do what must be done to ensure that these 10 people are brought to justice or redeemed. The man doesn't know who these people are or who's paying him, but as long as the money keeps coming, he does his job with unerring precision. He turns out the light, goes to sleep, and the next morning he sets out in search of the next name on the list. Hmm. I have a, oh, I like this. <laughs> Thanks. What's going to happen? Yes, well, let's, I want to see what's going to happen in yours, so give us your immediate aftermath. Okay, well, Stu remembers that the caller told him to stay honest, and this he does in all aspects of his life. As he is a publicist, this does not go well with his bosses <laughs> can, or his yeah, clients. I can yeah. imagine it wouldn't. Yeah. They threaten to fire him, but when a number of his brutally honest press releases and interviews catch the public's attention, it results in his clients' popularity increasing, and his bosses reconsider 
and end up promoting him, mm. to the surprise of everybody involved. Yeah. It seems the public likes this honesty and, and seeing the flaws of their celebrity heroes. This has a slow trickle-down effect, with more publicists, reporters and the like being truthful about events, news and business dealings. Stu still has nightmares about his time in the phone booth, but he tries to live life for the better. That's my immediate aftermath. Yeah, maybe he should meet up with Julianne for my ending, and the two of them can, yeah. you know, both live good lives together. Yeah, and then they both get a call, and then. <laughs> <laughs> right. I hope not. Jeez. <laughs> okay, then. So bring us back. What's going on with the? You know, who's giving them the money? Who's, right. who's written the list? Well, we may find out. Okay, what's going on with your long term? Three months later, the man with the briefcase finally crosses the last name off his list. A bag full of money is delivered to him, as always, and just like that, the job is done. A few weeks later, while on a beach in Costa Rica, the man's cell phone rings. A voice from the other end of the phone says, it's time to confess your crimes. <laughs> it's a little, little justice there, but Brilliant. now here's where it takes a turn. Okay. 57 years later, Stu Shepard sits alone inside his hotel room, crying. He finishes the letter he's writing, then seals it in an envelope. Inside the envelope is a list of 10 names with very explicit instructions. As a series of explosions echo in the distance, Stu wipes the tears from his face, then places the envelope in a strange metal box. He seals it, adjusts the controls, and then hits a sequence of buttons. The box glows a bright green, then fades from existence. Stu isn't sure if the list of names, ten people whose lives would irrevocably change the history of the world, will be enough to save the world from the terrible tragedies that had occurred since the discovery of time travel. But this was the only option he had left. He sat there waiting, knowing that if he was successful, his current world would never have existed, and he'd never even know he'd succeeded. As he sat there waiting, the slightest smile formed on his lips. It was the first time he'd smiled in many, many years. Wow. And that's the end. Oh, that's, that's really good. Thanks. Yeah, oh, cool. So that's how the money and everything turned up to time. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Very good. Very, very good. I did not expect that. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, thank, I'm glad because I try and keep people guessing. But um, I had originally come up with the idea of Stu being the caller and having traveled oh, through yeah, time. Yeah. and But I couldn't come up with a convincing enough reason for him to do it to himself in that way. Yeah. You yeah. know, I kind of, but, but I had the time travel idea and I wanted to run with it. So that's what I came up with. Very, no, very good. Thanks. Most enjoyable. Thank okay. you. Thank you. All right. Well, let's hear what's going on with your long term then. I want to see how this all plays out. Okay. Captain Ramsey has been keeping a file with various cases that could all involve the mysterious caller. All these files and stories ends up filling a couple of filing cabinets, but there's no definitive proof. However, he is sure that the caller is actually a group of five or six people who appear to be trying to make the world a better place by making people admit the truth to their wrongdoings. All the people killed in and around these situations all happen to be bad people. The pizza delivery guy killed during the phone booth incident turned out to be dealing in child pornography. Ramsey almost admires the callers for their ruthless attention to truth and justice. Sure, they are vigilantes, but if Ramsey is correct, they have never killed an innocent. One day, as he is ready to leave the, the office, Ramsey's phone rings. Answering it, a voice says, We know you've been looking into us. We'd like to talk to you. Ramsey was never seen again, but the callers had a new operative. Oh, I like that. So they con they converted him to their cause. Mm. I dig it. Yeah, but then there's a post-credit sequence. Oh, all right. Well, let's hear yeah, it. So we got the credits, you know, music. Ba -da -ba -da -boom. <laughs> that famous Phil, <laughs> Phil final credits music. And then it goes black, and then suddenly it comes up, and we see, oh, and we see this, we see a room, and there's a desk, and there's a phone on the desk. The phone on the desk in the Oval Office rings. <laughs> the man sat at the desk answers it. Mr. President, do not leave your seat. It's time for us to talk. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Well, that's, yeah, that's it. The callers are going to expand and just get bigger and bigger. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, listen, if they start going after people in Washington, they're going to have a lot of targets. So Yeah. <laughs> or just in government in general, any government, you know. I know, I know. Very mm. cool. Oh, I like that. Well, that, was, that was phone booth. Excellent. Phil, do you have any phone booth trivia for us? Yes. Well, the events happen in real time in the film. And while they were making the film, the scenes were shot in order. Hmm. So, which is, that's, I quite like, I always like it when they do that. It's, I think it must be easier for the actors as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Well, especially in a film like that, that's so, you know, so locked to one location. I yeah. imagine that that's a lot easier to pull off than when you're jumping all over the globe, filming in different places. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the extras hadn't read the script. So uh, the reactions to like uh, the gunshots and Colin Farrell, you know, screaming and things like that was all genuine oh wow uh, michael bay considered directing the film and when he met with writers and producers the first thing he asked was how can we get him out of the phone booth 
<laughs> which I totally believe because that seems very Michael Bay, but it's kind of like, did, yeah. did you read the script? Also, the screenwriter Larry Cohen wrote it. He pitched the concept of a film set in a phone booth to Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, wow. But they couldn't figure out how to keep the plot confined to the phone booth. Interesting. Uh, once, the, once the idea of a sniper came to Cohen in the 1990s, he wrote the script in under a month. Wow. Which is good. He also pitched it to Tony Curtis at one point. Huh. But Tony Curtis had some crazy demands, so it never went any further. Uh, Mel Gibson, Jim Carrey, Will Smith and Mark Wahlberg were all considered to play the main role of Stu. And that's Phone Booth. Very good. All right. Well, those are our endings. And uh, now we'll move on to our 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, wherein Phil and I take a year from the past century of Hollywood and share our top 10 favorite films. This week, we are talking about 2003. So, Phil, climb in that trusty old time machine of yours and tell us what was happening back in 2003. Yes. Okay. 2003. Uh, Here in the UK, the Prime Minister was Tony Blair and the United States President was George W. Bush. Belgium becomes the second country in the world to legally recognise same-sex marriages. There was the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster where all seven astronauts were sadly lost. Uh, the huge anti-war protests were made before the US and allies invaded Iraq. And as we know, the anti-war protests didn't really do anything to stop that, sadly. No. Uh, the World Health Organization issued global alerts over the SARS virus. And then a few months later said, actually, it's all clear. <laughs> right. The Human Genome Project was completed. Uh, and they sequenced 99% of the human genome. Prometheus, the first horse cloned by Italian scientists, was born. Uh, actually, no, it was the first horse cloned. It wasn't just the first one by Italian scientists, so there we go. Right. Uh, there was a massive blackout in America, which left 50 million people without power for a, a day. Mm-hmm. 50 million people. Yeah. Concorde made its last commercial flight and its last flight, and that was the end of supersonic travel. Uh, for some reason, we've never tried it again. Uh, Saddam Hussein was captured. And the last known speaker of the Akala Sami language died, rendering the language extinct. And uh, it was a, the Sami language is one of the ones from Russia. Huh. It's, it's crazy when a language can go extinct. Yeah. But we also saw the deaths of Morris Gibb, Michael Jetta, Fred Rogers, Nina Simone, Robert Stack, Gregory Peck, Catherine Hepburn, Hume Cronin, Buddy Hackett, Bob Hope, Barry White, Buddy Epson, Charles Bronson, John Ritter, Johnny Cash, Robert Palmer, Elliot Smith, R. Carney, and David Hemmings. That's 2003. There you go. All right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to let listeners in on a little behind the scenes. You know, I like to let people in the inner workings here sometimes. Yes. Last week when I said, "Phil, we're doing 2003 this week." And you you kind of just quickly glanced at it and said, "Oh, there's some pretty good films in 2003." I said, "Oh, great." Yeah. And then uh midweek when I was putting my list together, I sent you a furious message saying, "Why did you lie to me about 2003?" Yeah. Uh, not a great year for films. Did you find that? Yeah, there was, it was it was one of those ones where there's lots of those films we go, oh, well, you know, that was all right. Yeah. yeah. Well, you just you just sort of, it's ones you go, oh, I'll watch that. Lots of kind of like a director DVD. Right. Kind of, this kind is, of, yeah. yeah, this well, is definitely one of those lists where I look at the top 10. I'm like, God, this wouldn't even, some of these films wouldn't even be in my top 10 any other year. And, you know, it just, it's one of those, you look at it and kind of go, all right. I mean, these are all films I like, but it, I mean, honestly, my short list was only 13 films and usually it's up in like the twenties. I mean, there just wasn't very many good films this year. I thought just a lot of mediocre stuff, like a lot of films yeah. you kind of watched and were like, eh, I saw it. And that's pretty much all there is to say about it, you know? Yeah. It's like that kind of, uh, yeah, it was in a weird year. Yeah. Okay then. But, uh, out of the films of 2003, then what's, uh, what's your number 10, Mike? All right, my number 10 is Down With Love, which stars uh, Renee Zellweger and Ewan McGregor. And it's basically kind of a 2000s update of the old Doris Day, Rock Hudson romantic comedies, the Pillow Talk films, that whole kind of genre, short-lived as it was. It was directed by Peyton Reed, who went on to direct Ant-Man. And um, it's not a film that got a lot of attention. It wasn't a big box office hit, but I really enjoyed it. It um, It's very pink and very fun and frothy and lightweight, and it's just this cute romantic comedy. Uh, very much in, in that 50s style and, and looks like a movie kind of made in the 50s. And it just I think it really captured what it set out to do, which I really respect. And I, I wish more people had yeah. taken a chance on it. But it's it's a fun film that I, I that I enjoyed quite a bit. And I love Ewan McGregor and just about anything. And he's fantastic in this. Yeah, I remember enjoying that. I'd forgotten about the film, to be honest. Yeah. So I just, just saw it the once, but I remember it, it did catch it all very well. Welcome to 2003. <laughs> That's yeah, the kind of list yeah. it is. Yeah, okay. Well, we could. Well, I, I was surprised that with my number 10, it's actually a Ridley Scott film. Oh. But it is a Matchstick Man starring Nicolas Cage, Sam Rockwell, and Alison Lohman. Uh, it's all about... Uh, Nicholas Cage, he's, it's it's about con men, basically, and you know long cons and things like that. And Nicholas Cage's character is uh, suffers with Tourette's syndrome, 
on obsessive compulsive disorder. So Nicolas Cage playing a character with obsessive compulsive disorder that doesn't seem right. I'm sure he'd probably like. I, I probably. I'm sure he wouldn't go over the top with that. No. <laughs> uh, but he does. But it's uh, it's it's one of the good Nick. Nick Cage roles. He does good things, uh, as does Sam Rockwell and Alison Lohman, who was also in. Uh, she was also in Drag Me to Hell. Yeah, but this one I just quite liked it because it's uh, Nicholas Cage and Sam Rockwell doing cons together, and apparently Nicholas Cage's character thinks his long lost daughter shows up uh, and wants to learn about what he's been doing, and it all gets emotional, and he's not sure. And it's you know there's the rules of the con and things like that. But I always like a, a con, a good con movie, and I, I really enjoyed this one. You know, a lot of people like that movie, and I, I, I like it. It's perfectly fine. I, I watched it once. I, I enjoyed it. I, I will say that I kind of saw the ending coming like 80 miles away, Yeah, um, yeah. which took some of the fun out of it for me. But it's a fine movie. I, I like it, but it definitely didn't didn't make my list. Oh, fair enough. I can understand why uh, it wouldn't uh, make every most people's list, but uh, I, I enjoyed it. I know a lot of people who think that movie is really great, actually. So mm. I'm going to say I'm probably more in the minority, but but yeah, good choice. All right, well, my number nine is a Western, which I don't usually find on my list, but I do really, really like this movie, and it is Open Range, starring Kevin Costner and Robert Duvall. Um, and it is, uh, it's, it's like I said, it's a Western. It was written and directed by Kevin Costner, uh, kind of in the, the vein of Dances with Wolves, although it didn't reach that level of, of acclaim or success, obviously. But, uh, you know, Costner and Duvall are terrific. It's got a really good story and it, beautiful cinematography, and it's just a good film. I mean, it's not a, it's not your typical western about you know gunfights and bank robberies and stuff like that. But uh, it's it's really worth watching if you haven't seen it. I do recommend tracking it down. No, oh, an excellent pick. It's a good film that. I like that one. And uh, my number nine is a uh, it's a film uh, by Jim Jarmusch. It's uh, Coffee and Cigarettes, uh, and it's more like. Uh, it's more like a series of short films. It's basically uh, a few short stories which all revolve around coffee and cigarettes. It's black and white. Uh, it's quite, well, the funny, it's just basically, you've got people, it's got, it's got a huge amount of people in a big, Steve Buscemi, Iggy Pop, Meg White, Jack White, Alfred Molina, Bill Murray, just a huge, Stephen Wright, and it's just these little segments. Some are funny, some, are, some aren't quite as funny, but it's just, it's just really interesting seeing all these different talented people having these little conversations and miscommunications and talking about coffee and obsessions and things like that, music and basically being artists and stuff like that. It's it's a it's a fascinating little insight into into filmmaking and these, you know, the mind of an artist. Uh, not not really a fan of that movie, but I, I, I can certainly understand where people can like it. Yeah. All right. Well, my number eight was one of the biggest movies of the year, and it is The Matrix Reloaded, um, which was an interesting choice for me. I'm not, I wasn't really sure how, how where to put it on my list. You know, yeah. obviously, the first Matrix is one of my favorite movies of all time. The second and third films are much lesser films, and the second film gets a lot of flack from people, deservedly so in some cases, but there are also some really great scenes in it. The whole motorcycle giant truck chase and fight scene yeah. is, is really cool. Um, I don't really like the whole Keanu fighting 30 CGI Agent Smith scenes, um, but there is some neat stuff in it, and and I, I do love the world of The Matrix, and I did offer some answers to things that had happened in the first film, so I don't love it, love it in terms of like you know what I wanted it to be, but yeah. I don't hate it as much as some people do either. So I think number eight was kind of a good place for it to land. Yeah, it didn't make it didn't make my list, which uh, purely because the first the first Matrix was so good. Yeah, and I just. As you say, there were some great moments, but it just as a whole, I remember watching just going, oh, no. Right, right. Oh. Yep, yep. I think the problem was with the sequels, it just, the first one, we just had so many. I remember having conversations with my friends and just going, well, it could go this way, it could go that way. We all had these crazy theories and going this, and the film just didn't. Yeah. And also, you know, The Matrix is such a perfect film. It doesn't really yeah, need yeah. a sequel. I feel like it's one of those movies that would have been better off without sequels. Because the yeah, story yeah. tells itself and finishes and goes to a point where you can just leave it to your imagination. It didn't really need to have sequels. Yeah, yeah. It could have been left, yeah, with just the first film. Anyway, that's where it's at on my list. Fair enough. Okay, my number eight is a film called American Splendor, which is a film, comedy, drama, a biopic about uh, Harvey Picard, who was the, the writer and artist for the American Splendor comic book series. And Paul Giamatti plays him. And it's really good because Harvey Picard is just a bit of a bit of a grouch and he's just talking about life and well the comic the comic is really good and the film is really good and it's done there's lots of scenes where it's like turned to camera but also like comic book panels and it's just it's a there's a lot of love in the film for comic books and the creation of it and and the struggling writer and things like that and somebody who just just wants to get all these dark thoughts and life out of his head onto the page and it's 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 a good 
it's a good film about somebody who most people probably don't want, don't know much about. Yeah, no, I, I do like that movie. Again, didn't make my list, um, but but it is certainly a good film. And I did always like the American Splendor comics, so good choice. Thank you very much. All right. Well, my number seven marks the second romantic comedy, uh, more of a romantic dramedy, if you will, that appears on my list. And it is Love Actually, ah, yes, um, yes, yes. which has become kind of a, a Christmas classic. It gets aired on TV at Christmas time all the time. And um, what I realized when I watched it just this last Christmas was it's a really good film. You know, uh, obviously, I know it's very popular. I know women all love it. And it's all, you know, it's kind of one of those films like Beaches or whatever people, you know, people kind of considered a chick flick if you will to use that vernacular Mm -hmm. um but it's not it's just a really good ensemble piece about a bunch of really interesting characters and interesting situations there's some really funny moments there's some touching moments there's some romantic moments there's some heartbreaking moments uh just amazing performances i mean emma thompson you know and and oh the bit when she yeah she finds the present right that's just it's heartbreaking Uh, so it but it's a really really good film I, i was when i watched it again this this is the first time i watched it last year since it came out and i was struck by just what a great film it really is. So um, you can call it a chick flick or whatever you want. You can call it a Christmas flick, whatever it is. I think it's a really good movie. So that's my number seven. Yeah. It's a really good movie. It didn't. It was bubbling under my list, but didn't quite make the list. But no, it's a, a good choice. Uh, my number seven is a double whammy, and it's one of them has been on your list, uh, Open Range. Oh, good. I had a feeling that, that might be one you like. It's a slow burn western, It's but as you say, it's more like a slice of... It shows you, the, you know, what it was like living there. I imagine there is a gunfight, but it's it's not about that. It's just about about the West, right. really, isn't it? Yeah. But it's it's one of those ones. Kevin Costner, you know, taking his time with those things. I I really like. You know, some films, some films deserve to be long and sprawling and. Yeah, yeah. This one it works. Western. It works. Yeah, this one works. Yeah. Uh, and the other one is The Last Samurai, where Tom Cruise goes over to Japan and he gets involved with a, a local village there, and he starts. You know, he becomes involved, and he. He realizes that the uh, the American forces aren't there for the best, and he aids them. And it's I really like that. I know it gets uh, lots of Tom Cruise films get a load of stick, but I, I really like this one. Yeah, uh, great support cast as well. Some great moments, and the, you can have the whole argument that some films do about you know the white savior thing, but I, I just I thought it was a good film. I agree. I like it. Good yeah. choice. My number six is also one of the biggest movies of the year, and it is Lord of the Rings: Return of the King. Um, which obviously people love, and I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And it could have been higher on my list, I think, but I feel like the Lord of the Rings movies, as I've moved away from them in time, have, I don't want to say they've fallen down my list because I don't like them anymore, but my patience for like three-hour fantasy epics isn't quite where it used to be necessarily. Um, Yeah, yeah. You know, I I do love Return of the King. I do think it's the best of the Lord of the Rings films. Well, maybe tied with the first one, but it does have some really powerful moments, uh, and and it has good 14 endings to go with every one of those powerful (laughs) moments, but... Um, it's got some great moments, but but like I said, my my patience for those types of you know long fantasy epics isn't quite where it used to be. So uh, still on my list for sure, but it comes in at number six. Oh, very good, good choice. Uh, my number six is uh, Pirates of the Caribbean: The Curse of the Black Pearl. Good choice. Uh, I mean, I know the, the film's got a lot of stick now, but the first one came out. It was you know there was a lot of love for it. People, I think people now who, who slag off the uh, the franchise or the film series, they sort of forget you know that the first one is a pretty good film. It's really enjoyable, loads of fun. Uh, Captain Jack Sparrow at the time, you know, we were just going, wow, this was great. Great seeing Johnny Depp doing this. Uh, but as with most things, you know, if you, you get too much of a good thing, it can become a bit a bit stale. But this first one, Jeffy Rush and his his crew of pirates were quite scary and sinister. And you did feel, you know, the, you know these proper pirates doing, well, proper ghost pirates, but it's all, it was, it was scary, funny, a uh, bit of a mystery and full of sword fights and daring do and action packed swashbuckling kind of stuff, which is sometimes just absolutely perfect to watch. Yeah, yeah. To be fair, I think the reason people pick on the franchise is because the second and third films are two of the most dreadful, god-awful movies ever put on this <laughs> yeah. earth. I mean, I've, yeah. I've said this before, but the third film is so incomprehensible, you can actually cut up all the scenes in it, rearrange them in any order, and it will still make exactly as much sense as the finished product does. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They, are, yeah. they are just awful, awful, awful films. It was weird that they just they just tried to go too big. Yeah, and, and, to, yeah. and, and I think it's very much the, the 
what happened to the Matrix. You know, the first film was yeah, great, and then they yeah. just messed up the sequels royally. So I think yeah. people lump them all together. But I, I think most people still consider the first film a great film. It's but uh, well, that's uh, that's my number six. Very good. All right, well, my number five is the one film in his filmography that proves that Hayden Christensen can act, and it is Shattered Glass, which tells the true story of the New York Times journalist who was uh, shamed for plagiarism, and it sort of, uh, you know, kind of tells how that whole thing went down and how he got oh, caught. I remember this. Yeah. I've never seen it though. Oh really. man, it's so good. And I, I love journalism movies. I've said this before. I mean, I think yeah, go, yeah. if you go through my top 10 list, you'll find if there's a good journalism movie out that year, it's in my top 10. Um, but this one's really good. And Hayden Christensen plays this guy who just desperately wants to be liked and accepted. And that's what it's all about for him. And that's what drives him to plagiarize these articles because of the, the, you know, the acclaim he's getting for them. And then it all starts to unravel and, and it plays out almost like a thriller. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very, suspenseful and he's really good in it I don't know why he's never been able to be good in anything else but um, <laughs> it's a it's a really really good film it's an interesting story and it's a it's a film that I just I really really enjoyed so that's my number five okay because I do like a journalist kind of movie as well yeah so. I love them it's one okay. of my favorite I'll genres see it, I'll see if it's on any of the streaming things yeah worth watching gotta watch yeah. Okay, my number five is Old Boy Korean film by Park Chan-wook based on the Japanese manga of the same name uh, about a guy who's kidnapped and then held in this room for like 13 or 14 years. He's finally released and then he tries to find out why he was found. And it's, uh, it's there's a little bit of humor in it, but it's made, and there's a great fight scene, one of the best fight scenes on film, like a corridor fight scene with a hammer. But it's a dark, intriguing story, like a film noir kind of thing with some, some horrendous reveals when you go on, you find out what's been going on and who people are. But it's, uh, it just, it just dragged me into it and you just pulled along in this story. And you just want to know why all these things happen to him. And when you find out, you're wishing you hadn't. And then uh, Spike Lee remade it, and it wasn't very good. <laughs> very good choice. All right, well, my, my number four is a comedy from two filmmakers who I generally really hate. Uh, and that would be the Farrelly brothers. And the film is Stuck on You, which sees Matt Damon and Greg Kinnear <laughs> playing conjoined twins, which is is a fairly ridiculous concept for a movie. And I, I, I don't even well, you know... Could just, you could just... Dis just give that description. Right. And somebody could well go, even with you to know anything about it, they go, is that a Farley Brothers film? <laughs> right, exactly. And it, it it's it's right in line with a lot of their their humor. But man, for whatever reason, even though I don't like most of their films, this movie made me laugh so hard. It is really funny. The two, Matt Damon and Greg Kinnear give it their all, man. I mean, they really they they sell it. They have fun with this role. Like I think they knew they were just in a stupid comedy, and they just had a ball a ball doing it. Yeah. And some of the lines and some of the humor they come up with around the conjoined twins and and how they interact with each other is is really funny. And it's one of those movies. It didn't do very well at the theaters, and a lot of people haven't seen it. But I watched it with my whole family and uh, my you know my not my kids. My at the time it was my in laws and, and my wife and, yeah, and everybody. Yeah. And we all sat there hysterical. And it's just one of those films that we still fondly talk about because it's really really funny. So if you haven't seen it. It's definitely worth watching. I remember seeing it once when it when it came out, but uh, I remember laughing. But I, I need to see it again because I can't really remember much about yeah, it. Yeah, it's funny stuff. No good choice uh, and a surprising one to be honest. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, like, I like yeah, to keep you on your toes. That's two thousand three um, for you. Yes, it certainly is. Uh, my number four. You've already mentioned it, but it's Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King. I figured. I figured that'd be on there. Yeah. Lots of Middle Earth. You know, some big, huge, epic moments. Some lots, some lovely smaller moments as well. Character moments. Uh, a whole lot of endings. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is it finished yet? It's still going on. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yes. No, it was a it was a good ending, and the whole series of films was a really good adaptation of something which I thought you know they're not going to be able to do justice. But they did. Peter Jackson did an amazing job, and I still find it mad how the uh, the Lord of the Rings film films still look a lot better than the Hobbit films. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, for sure. I think there's lots of on-location kind of things, more with The Lord of the Rings than with The Hobbit, but right. that's my number four. Good choice. All right. Well, my number three has already appeared on your list, and it is Ooh. The Last Samurai. Oh, I thought I had a feeling it'd be on your yeah, list. Yeah, well, because I think we talked about it when I when I, I just watched yeah, it yeah. for the first time last year, and it, one of those movies I'd always been interested in seeing, i just never gotten around to, and I finally watched it last year, and I loved it. I, I know you said some people don't like it, it doesn't have the best reputation, whatever, but I think it's a fantastic film. It's really, really well done. Amazing action sequences. I mean, just gorgeous cinematography and, and, and scenery, and it's just so epic in scale and so big and powerful. And Tom Cruise is terrific in it, and I really like it. I, I wish it was a film 
film that had uh, more of a fan base than it does. But I, I think it's I think it's utterly terrific. So that's my number three. Oh, good choice, and I've got it made your list as well. Uh, my number three is Master and Commander: The Far Side of the World. Ah, yes, good. Pizza Weir film set in the Napoleonic War and starring Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany. Uh, Russell Crowe is brilliant as a captain, uh, Jack Aubrey. It's based on a series of books. Oh, yeah. 20 completed novels, all about Jack Aubrey's naval career. It's all based on that. Uh, but this one, it's great. It's about this this captain and his crew while on the far side of the world. And they're like, basically, there's a whole tactical thing going on with these uh, a Spanish uh, warship as well. They're trying to find each other and they, they also call into the Galapagos Islands and things like this. And just some really good scenes. You get you realise, you know, how claustrophobic it was on these ships. And they're just in in the middle of the ocean and they've all got to rely on each other and you've got to follow you know you know the the orders and things otherwise it will all fall apart but it's just it was so well done uh when you see some behind the scenes things as well about how they built the ship and it was like on a gimbal and there was one that actually went on the sea just phenomenal work uh and russell crowe in one of his uh, best roles i think very good excellent choice all right, well, my number two, once again, has already appeared on your list as well, and it is the aforementioned Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. Yay. Um, I think we've said most of what we need to say about it, but I do love that first film. It's it's really great, and it's fun, and Johnny Depp's performance was fresh and fun still and terrific, and uh, it just it works really well. It's it's a great-looking film, and uh, it was just a lot. I just remember enjoying it so much in the theaters, watching it with a big smile on my face and having a good time, and sometimes that's, that's all I want from a movie. Yeah, I mean, that's... That, that's a good night out of the cinema. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's my number two. Excellent. My number two is uh, Lost in Translation, Sophia Coppola's film with Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson about two lost souls who make a connection in Japan, in Tokyo. Uh, I just really like this. It's not much happens, but I just like the whole feel of it. And it's just, I've been away from home somewhere and you're just you're the only one there and you don't know anybody else. And then you just, you have to get chat to someone. Unfortunately, it's never been Bill Murray or Scarlett Johansson so far. <laughs> But you never know. You never know. Uh, but uh, it's just, it really captures this, those moments where there's life going on all around you, but you're just sort of just drifting. And Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson just great in it. That's my number two. I, a good choice. I, I had a feeling it would be on your list. So not a not a big surprise for me there. <laughs> all right. Well, I was going to tell you my number one. I was going to reveal it by sharing a quote from the film. But I realized there's just so many good quotes from the film that I don't even know where to start. So I'm just going to say my number one film of 2003 is Elf. Oh, excellent. Yes, yes. Didn't quite make my list. All right. Fair enough. I think you're crazy. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we've talked about it on the show at Christmas time. It's, yeah, it's yeah. you know, we, my family watches it every single year for Christmas. My kids love it. My wife and I love it, um, and it's it's just so funny. And it's got Mr. Narwhal, and it's got the world's best cup of coffee, and you know it's got the the, the raccoon, and he's an angry elf. And there's just so many great <laughs> moments and quotable lines from that film. And I watch it every year without fail. I never get tired of it, and it makes me laugh from start to finish. So that's my number one. So two Christmas movies on the list, this list: Elf and Love Actually. It's an excellent pick, and I do I do like that film. It didn't make my list, obviously, but my my number one is a close cousin to Elf. Okay. It's full of all that warmth and coziness and all that loveliness. <laughs> it's Kill Bill Volume 1. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. Quentin Tarantino directing Uma Thurman and Lucy Liu, Michael Madsen, and some lots of blood, lots of good cool sword fights, some cheesy dialogue, which they all deliver so well, uh, great fight scenes, some beautiful, beautifully framed shots, the the fight in the Blue Garden, is it? The uh, the bit in the snow. and yep. that's just Yeah, I love this film. I've watched it many a time. Watched it recently with a fan who'd never seen it. And he thoroughly enjoyed it. I just think it's great. I uh, just lots of fun. Yeah, uber violent and just it's always it's a good revenge flick. Right, right. Good choice. But yeah, number one, Kill Bill, Volume One, and Elf. All right, that's <laughs> a, that's a good double feature for sure. Yeah, just make sure. You put your kids to bed for before you put it on. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> let them stay out for Kill Bill, but don't let them stay yeah, out for Yeah, yeah, you know, get them used to, you know, life's hard. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, good choices all. That is uh, That wraps up 2003, a so-so year for movies, but uh, we found 10 that we liked, so that's something. All right, well, that's going to wrap up 2003 and also start to wrap up our episode. Phil, why don't you tell people what they can look forward to hearing from us next week? Okay, then, next episode, we're going to be going after the ending of... Watchmen, uh, the Zack Snyder adaptation of the classic uh, graphic novel by Alan Moore. Yeah, that's that should be an easy one. I don't think. I mean, that doesn't seem like it's going to be challenging at all. Yeah, it's it's a dead simple film. Yeah, really is. Yeah, there's not not much going on. No. It's a small cast of characters. Yeah. yeah, easy. Yeah, totally. It's it's just dealing with small things as well. There's no big issues. Nothing. Right. No yeah. big concepts at all. Nothing. Yeah. So probably just. <laughs> <laughs> 
oh Christ, what have we done for ourselves? <laughs> uh, we're also going after the ending of uh, Bee Movie, the Jerry Seinfeld film about a bee. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, watch. Yeah, yeah, I quite enjoy it. So, Watchmen and B movie, and and our top ten films of nineteen eighty four. A great year. Now that's a year for for movies. That's gonna be a much better list than two thousand three. Very good year. Wow, I cannot wait to do this. Yes, it's gonna be a lot of fun. So make sure you join us for that. It should be a real, real barnstormer of an episode, and we are looking forward to doing it. So uh, that's gonna wrap us up for now, though. Until next week, we thank you always for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next time. After the end. You are going to co-host a podcast about movie film endings. Movie film endings? What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Lou Romano. I know that name. Yeah, it's the uh, it's the, the human chef from Ratatouille. That's what it is. Thank you. But I've just I've just taken the name because I just I didn't know if it was important. Yeah, because I was I was going to introduce the rap, but I thought no, that's pushing it a bit. Too <laughs> right, 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 <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, my oh, depends on where yeah. you go with your ending. But if if you weren't going to a weird place, then having a rat would definitely yeah, be just like... just having that as part of it right, would just be really right, bizarre. Right, exactly. Yeah. Climb in that trusty old time machine of yours and tell us what was happening back in 2003. I will, but I just first need to blow my nose, so apologies. <laughs> I'm going to sneeze. Hold on. What's going on? <laughs> Damn it, man. <laughs> Trying to record a podcast. Get your sinuses yeah. in order. I knew you shouldn't have got that bag of dust. <laughs> okay, so some events in 2003. Dusted off dreams, you mean, right? Yes, that's exactly it. <laughs> Dewey the deer was cloned at Texas, uh, at a university in Texas. Uh, let me read that again. Dewey the deer cloned a tech. <laughs> God damn you, Dewey. You, do, do you want to do the uh, the rundown of Watchmen? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Sure. Sure. I'll do it. Yeah, and there's this guy. Yeah, who, exactly. Yeah, I'll, I'll, ta- yeah. I'll tackle it. A bunch of superheroes try to investigate the end of the world. I'll fall on that sword. Good man. All right. Hey, listen, can you hang on for just a second? Yeah. Uh, give me like a minute. I'll be right back, okay? Okay. But don't stop recording or anything. Don't stop recording. <laughs> Ooh. And while Mike is away, the secret word is blamange. The secret word is blamange. What bearing that will have on the show, I have no idea. But let's find out. If Mike says blamange, he'll win a prize. I don't know what that prize will be. But it could be some blamange. I hope blamange is something that our listeners in America know. Or is it just a local thing? I don't know. I don't really like blamange either. It's some kind of weird... What is blamange? I'm going to look it up. So blamange is a sweet dessert commonly made with milk or cream and sugar, thickened with gelatin, cornstarch, cornstarch or Irish moss, and often flavoured with almonds. It's usually set in a mould and served cold. Although traditionally white, blancmanges are frequently given alternative colours. Similar desserts are Bavarian cream, panna cotta, anin tofu and hopia. The historical blancmange originated sometime in the Middle Ages and usually consisted of capon or chicken, milk or almond milk, rice and sugar and was considered to be an ideal food for the sick. Although reading that, I think that could quite well make me sick if I was to eat that original recipe. To be honest, I should try it again, because the last time I had it, I was a child. And here comes Mike returning back to the show. Let me get my headphones on. I'm sure you were sitting so remember, quietly and waiting player. silently the whole time I was gone. I've, yeah. been talking, I've been talking the entire time, so it's something for you to listen to when you are editing. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.